say it spooky. Hello, Owlet. There it is. There it is. There it is. I'm. Uh, shoot, I don't have a good sp spooky version of PB. PB stands for um, P Bunny. Oh, I was gonna go with like um peaceful bones. CJ carjacking. Uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> That's scary. Yeah, but it's not spooky. Uh, I think it's spooky. Spooky and scary are two very different things. Like, the book we're going to talk about today is maybe slightly spooky, but not scary at all. You're right. CJ. Carrot juicing. There we go. That's much more on topic. So, normally, we're the Gahooligans. Um, I guess we're still the Gahooligans. We're just not talking about a Gahool today. Or owls at all. Or any bird. Uh, yeah, I don't think a bird comes up once in this book, because today we're talking about the classic of children's horror, in quotes, Funicula. Why? It counts! It's a rabbit tale of mystery! It is. It is a very... This is a book that I hold very dear from my childhood. I remember it very fondly. I couldn't have told you a single thing that happened in it. But we've kind of swapped the balance of the show, because the day I'm the one who's read the book... And I didn't. But you but did as a kid, right? I did as a kid, and again, I am a librarian. It is literally my job to keep a backlog of, like, book knowledge to hand out as reader's advisories. So there is some stuff I can tell you about Benicula, um, but... Yeah, uh, before we get into the book proper, I wanted to ask you a couple questions. Okay, okay. Um, what was your first horror book? A book that, at least at the time, felt like it was going to be a scary book, even if, as an adult, looking back, it wasn't. I don't... Okay, there are two. I don't remember which one I read first. Um, but I have very distinct early memories of both books. The first is, um... I think it's called The Last Apprentice? That sounds familiar, yeah. Yeah, he's the seventh son of a seventh son, mm -hmm. and he goes and apprentices himself to a spook, and it has some really great, gross meat pie eating Ooh. scenes courtesy of a witch great stuff there's also um i remember as a kid <laughs> getting the audiobook of neil gaiman's Coraline. oh yes which neil gaiman likes to read all of his own books because he's wonderful and mm -hmm. british he's very good at reading his own books he also made rat songs in uh -huh. Coraline, and uh -huh. he sings the rat songs and they have a tune and I used to listen to books to fall asleep. Oh, yeah. So, so I just... a great book to fall asleep, too. <laughs> Bunch of creepy singing rats in the middle of the night. Yeah. No, we will have to do a Coraline at some point. It's a good one. That's a good one. Just because that's a... I love Gaiman. You love spooky books and children's books. Well, and I feel like Benicula and Coraline are a very similar reading age, but not reading maturity. Yes, okay, that, that is correct, absolutely. They are a similar reading level, but not content-wise. Alright, and second, uh, who's your favorite vampire? Oh, I mean, right now, today, Asterian. Oh, yes, of course, Asterian. Baldur's of, Gate. Yes. Uh, I'll say for the record, for me, uh, it would be Colin Robinson, from what we do in Shadows. <laughs> the energy vampire, who is just very boring and annoying, and that's how he feeds. I, I'm a sucker for that. I mean, that's... Valid. Yeah. Um, let's see. And first horror book for me, I don't know. I didn't read a lot of stuff that I thought of as scary at the time. Like, I didn't consider myself a horror reader. Like, mm -hmm. I didn't do any R.L. Stein or anything. I never enjoyed R.L. Stein. I, mm -hmm. that, that's my hot. 
like, burn me at the stake here. I never took R.L. Stein seriously. I could never get into them. There's just pictures of demonic hamsters on the front cover. And in what world is that horrifying or even possible, you know? Like, there's a suspension of disbelief required for R.L. Stein that I am not capable of. Uh-huh. Well, I guess there's always a fine line between, especially in, like, the more the children's realm and in the realm of the spooky rather than the scary, of silly versus scary. But the point of a horror book... Okay, 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 writing time. Yeah. CJ's writing corner. Um, if you want a book to be scary, if you want to actually thrill or horrify readers, you must provide downtime periods. You must have moments that are funny or calm or beautiful. Otherwise, those other moments, the scary moments, have no meaning whatsoever. That's what's so great about Coraline. Mm-hmm. You know, like Shaggy and Scooby have to stop and eat a giant sandwich together. <laughs> R.L. Stein, that's just a whole lot of blood. Well, I guess... And then there was snot. Mm-hmm. Bleh. I don't know. I always had the impression that those books were, like, goofy horror, as, like, they were always kind of silly, never particularly serious. Yeah. I mean, yeah. One of the main series is, is Slappy World. Mm-hmm. So, yes. But we're and, not talking about any yeah. of those books. Anything else you, as a, with your experience here, want to say about scary books for kids, or do you want that to come up in conversation? Um, don't keep your kids from reading horror. If you have or know kids under the age of 10, reading about fear is what teaches you to deal with fear, especially when that fear is irrational, abnormal, impossible. It's, it's literally developmental. Horror is developmental. That's my hot take for the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if your kid's reading something particularly scary, you know, check in with them. Right. See, I mean, talk, talk about, about it. it. You know, read it alongside them so you know, like... Read it together. Yeah, That is yeah. the best way to read a horror book. And maybe don't make reading it be the last thing you do before you go to sleep. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good night book, for sure. Vanicula right. probably could be. Yeah, no, Vanicula is a perfectly fine bedtime story. Alright, so Vanicula is the beginning of a very long series of books, actually. I think mm -hmm, there's like six mm -hmm. or seven in the series. Holiday Inn. Uh -huh. And it is by Deborah and James Howe. And I did read up on the authors a little bit. This book came out in... Uh, 1998? 1979. 1979? Yes. It was one of uh, their first books. And actually, Deborah was sick with cancer. Oh. As she and James wrote the book, and she died before it was published. And then he kind of continued on this series and, like, really started to find, like, a, a role as, like, a children's author. Whereas before, like, he had been more in theater, I want to say. Did they write it for any kids? Like, did it have kids I think they wrote it as just, like, this was a funny idea they'd had for a while if, what you know, what if a rabbit was a vampire? <laughs> and they're like, you know what, hey, this is something we can do while we are dealing with very hard real-life stuff. This is something we can share together. So, I don't know. That, That's both sweet and sad. Yeah, so it gives me a very melancholy feeling reading this book, you know? Yeah, uh, looks like James Howe hasn't written in, in a while. I would be surprised But he had he a good, did. like, 30, 40-year career. Yeah. He had one of those classic children's book author, you know, bibliographies of, like, you know, 80 books. Oh, wow. I didn't realize he had that many. Well, because, like, this book is under 100 pages. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that. So, like, it doesn't take 
in terms of like writing the words, like I know the editing, like it still is an accomplishment to write a book, even mm-hmm. if it is a children's book. But in terms of like as a professional writing time, you know, it's it's easier to hit Stephen King levels of productivity <laughs> when you're writing a hundred page book mm-hmm. that can all kind of have the same plot. So let's get into the plot. Do CJ, I get, do I get to do the thing this yeah. time? I would like you to tell me. Uh, the plot, or anything else you want to focus in on about Panicula. Okay, joke's on you. I'm a librarian and I know how to do this. Okay, so, um, I remember they, there is a family with two boys and a dog and a cat, and one night they go out to go do something, and instead of doing something, they come back with a mysterious box, and in that box is a rabbit. But not just any rabbit, a weird, albino, red-eyed rabbit. And I think it's the dog who becomes, like, super suspicious constantly of this rabbit uh, being in the house, becomes absolutely convinced it's it's a vampire, and tries to, like, save the family with courage and bravery, and all of the vegetables are wilting, um, and it's definitely the rabbit's fault. (laughs) But yeah, and then it turns out the rabbit's probably fine at the end. Yeah, yeah. I was never a vampire at all. All right, you're, you've got the main points down. You're wrong about one thing. Um, can you tell me who narrates this book? It's the dog, isn't it? Yes, it's written from the dog's perspective. But the character who becomes paranoid about the rabbit is the cat. That makes far more sense. The cat should be the paranoid yes. one. Yes, Chester the cat is definitely the high point of the book. <laughs> I, you know, this book, I, I have written down here themes... And, like, we'll get to there. Like, there's a little bit to say about class in these books, acceptance, the importance of literature. But most of the theme of this book is just animal humor. Excellent. Which, to 8-year-old PB, exactly what they're looking for in a book. To 28-year-old PB, like, I still had a couple giggles at this book as an adult. Like, (laughs) I don't think I... I didn't love reading this book as an adult by any means, but there's part of me that was like, well, I do remember this book fondly. And there are still a few lines that did get giggles out of me. So yeah, so let's, uh, this book gets straight to the action. You're talking about downtime. There's not very much downtime in this book, or on the other hand, maybe it's entirely downtime? There's less downtime in children's books Mm -hmm. in general, but there should at times be a paragraph of gentle description or funny times. And even the jokes you're talking about Mm -hmm. are enough to offset a horror aspect. Uh And also, like, this book is not... This book is not even trying to be scary in any way. <laughs> this book is just trying to be silly and maybe a little mysterious. Uh, so, you're right that the family comes back with a rabbit. Uh, the dog and cat did not go out, get to go along because the family went to the movies. What movie did they go to? Oh, probably something like Frankenstein, right? Well, come on. What's more on the nose than that? More on the nose? Oh, Dracula. Yes. They went to go see a Dracula movie. Of course they did. It's unclear which Dracula movie. Especially because they took, like, a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. At least, those, I don't know the actual canon ages of the two kids, but they feel, like, around 10 and 12, somewhere in there. Maybe 12 and 14. it's two boys, right? Yes, two boys. Yes, we have our family, Mr. and Mrs. Monroe. Mr. Monroe is an English professor, and Mrs. Uh, Monroe is a lawyer. And then the older kid is a little bit of a jerk. You can tell that he's, like, starting to be a moody teenager. Uh, Doesn't get very much screen time at all. And then the younger brother... Toby is a uh, the dog's best friend, and they stay up late at night reading and eating snacks together. <laughs> uh, 
Let's see. So yeah, so the family comes back with this rabbit. Importantly, the rabbit is not albino, actually. It has a uh, black on its... Uh, actually, the cover illustrates this pretty well. Uh, you know, I never noticed it has black that. on its back, giving it a widow's peak and a cape going around it, its <laughs> shoulders. It was also found in a box with a note. Oh! Um, in a foreign language that no one in the family can read. Um, we'll come back to that note. Because we end up translating that note, um, right? We translate it right away, but I want to save it for later. Okay, okay. Because I have the structure, we'll talk about the plot first, and then go back and talk more about some of the specific characters. Okay. I remember this book being, like, almost noir. Like, yes, kid noir. Absolutely. This is kid noir, told from the point of view of a dog, who's like a big shaggy dog. How uh, Harold is his name. Keep wanting to say Howard, but he's Harold. He's been with this family the longest. He protects the family very well. And, uh, actually, here, I will just, uh, there's a, there's a thing about the family and how they treat their pets, which I feel like is good scene setting. See, this is great, because now you can flip through the pages madly trying to find the, all the pieces you wanted, mm -hmm. and I get to just sit here and watch and try and crack jokes and... Yeah, yeah, I know, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? I did no prep for this for the first time. It, it's kind of wonderful. Alright, so, yeah, so there's a... Part of the suspension of disbelief in this book is that uh, everyone in this family, or at least our, all of our important characters in this family, are readers. All of them, you know, the dad is an English professor. The mom is mostly in a mom role. and means she doesn't get to do very much reading, at least in this first book. Um, even though she is also, like, a professional woman. You like, said lawyer, right? Yes. So, like, she, both, both of them are out of the house for good portions of the day. And then the younger kid, Toby, is a big reader. He spends this book reading Treasure Island. Nice. Uh, Chester, the cat, reads a lot. And that maybe causes a lot of the problems in this book. And uh, we see Harold can read too. Oh, I'll read from the book. This is from uh, chapter one. At this point, I feel I must explain something. In our family, everyone treats everyone else with great respect for his or her intelligence. That goes for animals as well as the people. Everything that happens to them is explained to us. It's never been just, good boy, Harold, or use the litter box tester at our house. Oh, no. With us, it's, hey, Harold, dad got a raisin, now we're in a higher tax bracket. Or, come sit on this bed, Chester, and watch this Wild Kingdom show. Maybe you'll see a relative. Which shows just how thoughtful they are. But, after all, Mr. Monroe is a college professor, and Mrs. Monroe is a lawyer, so we think of it as a rather special household. And we are, therefore, rather special pets. Can you imagine trying to tell an eight-year-old, hey, we're in a higher tax bracket? Well, that, that is the eight-year-old saying it. <laughs> what? I don't know. I didn't know what a tax bracket was at eight. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I think that does definitely get into the class of, like, this is a story about an upper-middle-class family in the 70s. And it's a family specifically with a dad who's a professor and a mom who was highly educated, and that is the sort of household that I grew up in. That so, is, yeah, not at all my experience. There are parts of, the of this world. that I definitely like relate to the worldview of it, and like you get a sense that this is, you know, the sort of household that the authors were living in, too, you know? Yeah. That yeah. they both grew up in and were running. I don't know, just a thing to keep in mind through this book is like, I don't know, there are parts of this that might connect more for me than for you because of our different backgrounds. 
That's probably true. Yeah. Um, I do think that one thing we share with this book in our backgrounds is like our families did value reading. Like, um, I I wouldn't say that mine did. I would say that my family valued me reading. Yes. And my family supported me reading, but they were also never going to like talk anybody into reading because it's not yeah, what they enjoyed doing. And I remember Benicula as being a book that I enjoyed well enough, read the first book, put down, and never read the rest of the series. Yeah, yeah. I definitely read the rest of the series, because in the second book I was looking at plot summaries, they get a dachshund puppy, and I grew up with <laughs> dachshunds, so I don't know, we might have to come back for a second book here. So you're saying these books are about you? Or yes, or the imagined <laughs> life of pets, except I never had a cat. I did, I did. <laughs> so our family comes back, um... We spend three pages trying to figure out a name for this rabbit before finally settling on Benicula. <laughs> um, which the whole family gets involved in because they all, you know, treat each other equally. So they'll say like, hey, Howard, what do you think we should name the rabbit? Okay, is this one of those situations where they say, we all treat each other equally, but like, at the end of the day, mom's still in charge or? <laughs> well, yeah. But like they treat each other, they, importantly, they treat their pets with respect and, you know, don't try to dumb things down for them. If we did not dumb things down for our dog, our dog would be even dumber. He's a very smart dog. Right now he's trying to eat his bone in front of the microphone. Yeah, he's trying to contribute. <laughs> we always say he's part of this podcast and then we let, don't let him do anything. He's well, contributing the best he can. When we do let him do anything, he knocks over the microphone. <laughs> yeah, that's his contribution. Alright, so... Uh, after this, uh, inciting incident, uh, the rabbit is nocturnal, sleeps all day, is awake in the night, so the family mostly just sees it as like, oh, okay, this is our new, like, lazy pet, and the dog and the cat are both a bit jealous that there's a new pet getting all the attention. Valid. Um. Solution. Cat eats bunny. Book over. The cat never seems to have interest in eating Bunicula. The cat has been reading Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, good. And <laughs> begins to see some things. The cat wakes in the middle of the, or is awake in the middle of the night, as cats do, and sees the funicula by moonlight showing a toothy smile with bangs. I mean, bunny teeth? It also appears to disappear and reappear in its cage without being able, without like the cage being broken or unlocked or anything that they can tell. And then Chester comes across. The, the sound of the fridge being opened. Bum, bum, bum! And in the morning, the family discovers a tomato that has gone pure white and is entirely dry inside. <laughs> the family's baffled by this. They're like, oh, do we have some sort of vegetable blight? Whereas the cat is like, okay, yeah, the rabbit's a vampire. We have to kill the rabbit or we have to, you know, defeat it. If it's just eating vegetables, is it really a threat? Um, well, to... Quote Chester, with the quote that is also on the cover of this book, Today Vegetables, Tomorrow the World. <laughs> yeah, there, there's bits of good silliness in here. Like, when the cat says that near the end, Howard responds like, I think you're overstating your case a little bit. <laughs> yeah, Howard is kind of mostly watching this in bemusement, more interested in when he's going to get his snacks. Classic dog move. Mm-hmm. Uh... The cat has several different schemes to defeat uh, the rabbit. 
uh, at one point they steal a steak from the fridge and try to drive it through the rabbit's heart. They don't really understand what they're doing. Oh, okay. I was confused there for a moment. You're talking about taking a T-bone yeah, yeah. and putting it on top of an herbivore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. Uh-huh. <laughs> it actually works out great for Howard because then the steak is ruined, so then he gets to eat it. <laughs> so this scheme works out perfectly for him. Uh, the rabbit starts uh, wearing garlic around its neck, which the dog absolutely hates. Howard hates the smell of it. And also it does keep the rabbit at bay. Oh, Chester's wearing the garlic. Yes, Chester's wearing the garlic. Chester tries to make the Howard wear the garlic, and he refuses. And Chester begins to block Manicula from getting into the kitchen by standing guard all night, wearing garlic around his neck. <laughs> so Manicula starts to starve. What Edgar Allan Poe is this cat reading? Like, well, at worst, you should want to put the cat in- At first, he was in... reading The Fall of the House of Usher, and then okay, after okay. he became suspicious, he read The Mark of the Vampire, which I didn't check whether that's a real book or not, but that's where he picks up all the vampire lore. They also try to douse the rabbit in water, but miss. Um, and they try to convince the family, or the cat tries to convince the family. The family never figures out anything, of course, because they're the dumb humans and we are the smart pets. You know, <laughs> an important theme of, you know, most books with talking animals. Oh, of course, yeah. And then we finally hit our climax where the dog has figured out, oh no, look, the rabbit is starving, but they've put a salad out on the dinner table and everyone else is preoccupied. So I can go open the rabbit's cage, grab him, and drop him in the bowl of salad so he can actually eat and not starve to death. At which point the cat comes in. Whoa, 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 whoa. What? Can I cuss? Can I cuss on this podcast? Is, no. Is that, oh, frink. Okay. What the frink happened to this rabbit that it's now starving? Is oh. this family not feeding the rabbit? Um, Chester has been stealing the rabbit's food. Oh. Well, that's... Kind of a... Because Chester thinks it's a vampire, and you have to kill a vampire. By starving it? Doesn't that just make it more desperate? Anyway, continue. So yeah, so we end with absolute chaos in the kitchen, as the cat comes in and tries to, you know, smother the rabbit, and... I don't remember, is the rabbit... Does Chester actually try to kill the rabbit? I don't think That's so. That's really dark, actually, for a children's book. No, I think he just tries to knock the rabbit out of the salad bowl. At which point the family comes running in as the dog starts barking. The only thing that he can really do. And we have this big climax and it's like, oh man, now everything is wrong in the world. And then we go to our last chapter. It's like, well, the family took everybody to the vet. <laughs> and they figured out the rabbit was on malnutrition. So they, it got put on a liquid diet, which is perfect. In fact, liked it so much that it just stays on the liquid diet. <laughs> uh, the dog thought he was going to have to get shots, but he didn't eat his shots yet. So it worked out perfect for him. And the cat uh, gets to see a cat psychologist. What is a cat psychologist? Oh, we'll jump back to that in a sec when we talk about the cat in detail. Uh, yeah, that's the entire plot of the book. The, very little happens here. No, no, no. So the, what... Okay, this is, this is a common thing in children's literature. Mm -hmm. You don't need a quote-unquote plot, right? Yeah, yeah. Most, at, most kids at this point are not ready to start doing a whole story arc, but what you can do is sequencing, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. One event, then the next event, then the next event, then the end. Yes. And there are good events here. There is a good sequencing of uh, the cat. Notice something weird about the rabbit. The cat has a theory about the rabbit. Right. The cat tests the theory about the rabbit. The what cat... are all the theories uh -huh. that the cat uses to test the <laughs> rabbit? Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. So when we think about how we learn plot, <laughs> this is step one. Absolutely, absolutely. I just think for our purposes, there's no plot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so let's get into the characters. 
Uh, I really want to mostly talk about our three anim main animals. The Monroes are a nice enough family. There's not too much to say about them. Mr. Monroe's your typical bumbling English professor. You know, always a little bit uh, absent-minded. Um, there's a great line about how he uh, uh, he got Chester as a... Uh, who's named after the author G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I don't know off the back I top don't of my know. head. Yeah, I don't know that one. Um, as a birthday present several years ago. And he practices all of his lectures on Chester. And if Chester oh. doesn't fall asleep, then he knows it's a good lecture. And it also means that Chester became a very well-read cat from a young age. Whereas Harold, meanwhile, has a uh, more of a literal taste for books, he says. Oh, okay. So I just looked up this Chesterton fellow. Mm -hmm. uh, first line of Wikipedia. Gilbert Keith Chesterton was an English writer, philosopher, Christian apologist, and literary and art critic. Mm -hmm. Um. Apparently led the Catholic literary, literary revival. Mm -hmm. I don't know a single one of these books on his notable works list. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what he revived. I did not read it. <laughs> his best known character is the priest detective Father Brown. That sounds familiar. That sounds vaguely familiar. And he did a study on Charles Dickens. I don't know. That's all I got. All right. Well, let's talk about Harold for a minute first. Harold is a relatively simple dog, as far as dogs go. He is a good narrator. Um, let's see, this book starts with an editor's note, which I'll, I'll just read it. The book you are about to read was brought to my attention in a most unusual way. One Friday afternoon, just before closing time, I heard a scratching sound at the front door of my office. When I opened the door, there stood before me a sad-eyed, droopy-eared dog carrying a large, plain envelope in his mouth. He dropped it at my feet gave me a soulful glance, and with great, quiet dignity, sauntered away. Inside the envelope was the manuscript of the book you now hold in your hands, together with this letter. Gentlemen, the enclosed story is true. It happened in this very town to me and the family with whom I reside. I have changed the names of the family in order to protect them, but in all other respects, everything you will read here is factual. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Harold. I come to writing purely by chance. My full-time occupation is dog. <laughs> I live with Mr. and Mrs. X, here called the Monroes, and their two sons, Toby, aged 8, and Pete, aged 10. Oh, okay, we do have canonical ages, I just forgot. Also sharing our home is a cat named Chester, whom I am pleased to call my friend. We were a typical American family, and still are, though some of the events re related in this story have, of course, had their effect on our lives. I hope this, you find this tale sufficient interest for you and your readers to warrant publication. All right, so that's the first thing I wanted to mention about Harold is that, yeah, no, he wrote this book how? and brought it to an editor. But how? Um, I would bet you that Chester transcribed it for him. I'm sure Chester could hold him. Chester can't, no, no. Cats are dexterous. Thumbs. Okay, actually, probably typewriter, typewriter. That's the answer. You try and use a typewriter with a paw. Cats can do it. Cats have dexterous enough paws. Okay, now I have the mental image of a cat bapping a typewriter. That might work. Uh-huh. That fits exactly in the tone of these books, too, is the dog dictating to the cat who's typing out, paw-finding the keys on the typewriter. Um. Second thing I want to point out about Harold is that, um, I mentioned that the rabbit came with a note. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one of the family can read it, but the dog has to say, Now, 
Most people might call me a mongrel, but I have some pretty fancy bloodlines running through these veins, and Russian wolfhound happens to be one of them. Because my family got around a lot, I was able to recognize the language as an obscure dialect of the Carpathian Mountain region, which is where Transylvania would reside, right, of course. Right. Roughly translated, it read, Take good care of my baby. But I couldn't tell if it was a note from a bereaved mother or a piece of Romanian sheet music. So, okay, so the dog can read languages based on his blood. Yes. Inherently. Uh huh. I've, okay. You remember your th- class theme? Yeah, how yeah. This book is kind of about class. That feels like a statement somehow. I didn't read the book, but that feels like a statement. I feel like it's written here as a joke. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. But, but, yeah. The the assumptions around that joke, yeah. <laughs> and we see in this book that, like, just like with uh, Chester, being adopted by his family, and specifically by Mister Monroe, the English professor, becomes an avid reader. Uh, so I don't know, there's both blood family and, uh, you know, adoptive family directly influence these characters' mm-hmm, mm-hmm. literary literary abilities. The last thing I want, or I have a couple. I have one other. Oh yeah, this was just one Harold line that I thought was funny. Just, just give you a sense of the animal humor here. It still tickles me and I accept that like, this is like, the easiest thing to write oh, is the easiest thing to read. Still makes it good. Now, some people, especially Mr. and Mrs. Monroe, can't understand my taste for shoes and yell at me for snacking on them. But I always say, there's no accounting for taste. Oh, that's just, that's the voice that Harold has in this book. That doesn't mean that I will forgive Miles for stealing my shoes. No, but, the, you know, there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> yeah, and he goes on to say that, uh, you know, I tried one of Mr. Monroe's sour candies, and it was the worst thing I'd ever tasted. And it, but I'll eat a shoe. And it made me go ooh for days. <laughs> but shoes are delicious. Now, Harold's absolute favorite snacks are what he shares with Toby, the eight-year-old, because his favorite thing is he and Toby stay up late on Friday nights reading because Toby doesn't have to go to school the next day. Yes. And Toby lets him sleep in his room and always keeps a stash of snacks that they share. Because they are best friends. And his very favorite snack to share with Toby is chocolate cupcakes filled with cream. Oh no. No. No, 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 no. That is this dog's favorite snack that he shares with Toby. No. And apparently this is the thing he's had a taste for for years and it's never done him any harm. And that is, yeah, maybe harmful misinformation in this book. No. Don't feed your dog chocolate. I have to imagine is that the cream inside balances the chocolate and makes it fine. That's not how, no, that's not how nutrition works. What I do want to know about how nutrition works is why was the tomato drained of color but not eaten? Oh, oh, that's how banicula works. But, but. (laughs) So after the tomato, we find a bunch of other vegetables and all the vegetables have been completely drained of color and of moisture. And they are found with little fang marks in them, like two little pinpricks. Just like a vampire would drink a human's blood or an animal's blood, leave them dry and pale, that's what this rabbit does to vegetables. Okay, so then why are we worried about the world? Because it's a vampire, and you can't trust vampires. Veggie vampire? And to be clear, the only character who's ever worried about this is Chester. 
We make jokes about Edward Cullen being a vegetarian. This one is actually a vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, I know. This is a vegetarian vampire. That's what everyone knows about Banicula. And that's why, like, no one else is particularly concerned. But Chester has been reading about vampires and, you know, all those stories about vampires, they tend to paint them in a pretty bad light. You know, this was pre-Twilight. <laughs> there weren't a lot of, like, pro-vampire novels out there. To differ, the story of the vampire has always been one of sexual appeal and like alert. Yeah, well, Chester's been neutered, so at least I'm assuming Chester's been neutered. <laughs> yes, but has Banicula? Uh, that's a good question. Because I... that's the point, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, there's nothing alluring about this rabbit, is there? Uh, people like this rabbit. It, it it's got a magnetic personality. Do we talk to this rabbit in the book um, at all? So let's actually talk about Banicula. Um, I have a few questions for you. Mm -hmm. Does Banicula speak in this book? It sounds like no. To your memory, does Banicula speak in this book? No, I don't remember is, Banicula speaking. That is correct. Banicula so, never talks. It's just not a character. It's an it. Banicula's more kind of a regular pet. Um, the most Banicula ever does is give a couple knowing smiles. That really undermines the point of a vampire. The point of a vampire is temptation and allure. I'm, yeah. Uh, this isn't a vampire book, hon. It's called Bonicula. I know. It's a bait and switch. I want my vampires. No, it's just a weird rabbit. <laughs> um, yeah, Bonicula through the entire book is just a little guy. Lives happily in his cage. Uh, drinks the juices out of vegetables. The powers appear to be that he can get out of his cage without opening the door, he can open the fridge, and that he is susceptible to all of the normal vampire weaknesses of garlic, and presumably water, running water, and uh, stake through the heart, I'm sure. But, you know, that would kill normal rabbits. So. Look, if this rabbit can open the fridge and I'm a dog, mm -hmm. we're becoming best friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Somehow Harold never thinks to, like, team up with that. That's a future book, I'm sure. Yeah, so there's not too much to say about Banicula. Uh, the family never figures out anything's weird about Banicula. They just end up putting him on a liquid diet, and he seems happy that way, and then he doesn't have to drain vegetables of their juices anymore. You know, if he would eat the vegetable, he probably wouldn't be malnourished. Well, he can't, though, because that's one of the rules of vampires, <laughs> is you know, they can only eat blood. They can't, they can't eat other things. <laughs> Alright, and then lastly, the character who definitely gets the most characterization in this book, Chester, the cat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm who really, really wants there to be a big mystery to solve, and is maybe a little paranoid, but also honestly just looking to make trouble and having fun doing so. You know, like a cat does. Yeah, 100%. Um, let's see, there is a good introduction to Chester. Beginning of chapter three. Actually, I've already talked about a good portion of this. Yeah, I've already talked about the points here that he was given to Mr. Monroe, that he listens to Mr. Monroe's lectures. Um, and every night when the family's sleeping, Chester goes to the bookshelf, selects his midnight reading, and curls up on his favorite chair. He likes to read mystery stories and tales of horror and the supernatural, so he has a bit of an imagination. <laughs> That's our introduction to Chester. So Chester is the one who is certain that this uh, rabbit is a threat. Um, there's a good cat moment of Chester, where this is like about halfway through the book is where Chester's now certain and has been trying to convince Harold, and then they realize that they left the cage unattended and the 
but the bunny has disappeared. Um, they go sneak into the kitchen, and they see something strange on the ground. He turned. This new object interested him more than following Vanicula. Watch out, he said. I'll take care of this. He slunk across the room, slowly, muscles taut, eyes alert. When he was about six inches away, he stuck out his paw, closed his eyes, and batted at the object tentatively. I don't think he made any contact. Get closer, I said. Chester's eyes popped open. Who's the cat here? He said. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> he proceeded to bat the air three more times. What is it? I squealed, my throat contracted in fear. I don't know yet, but whatever it is, it's not alive. Ugh, if I wait here for you, you're... we'll be here all night. I walked bravely to the object and sniffed it. Well? asked Chester. Beats me. <laughs> Chester came closer. After a moment of examination, he gasped. I jumped. I could feel my heart pounding in my chest. Harold, Chester blurted. What? What? It's... Yes. It's... What is it, Chester? It's a white zucchini! <laughs> Which does put me in mind of those great videos of cats rocketing 20 feet into the air when <laughs> seeing a, a cucumber on the ground. <sighs> so really, like, the length of this book comes mm -hmm. from animal jokes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, I haven't mentioned that there are illustrations through this book mm -hmm. that are, uh, like, woodcuts. Yeah, linos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, linos. Um, and sometimes they're a little bit hard to parse, but some of them are absolutely lovely. Like this picture of Chester with the zucchini. That I will put Beautiful, in confused face. Uh-huh. Just a perfect scruffy cat. <laughs> Just the perfect conspiracy theorist cat is really what it is. So in my head now, Chester is going to be one of those, uh, you know, orange tabbies? You know the stories about orange Chester tabbies? Chester is an orange tabby. Chester is. <laughs> See, that's perfect. <laughs> so the stereotype about orange tabbies is that they're like wackadoodle cats. Uh -huh. They're always male. They cannot control themselves ever. And they're just little demons. All right. Um. Chester also has the best scene of the book. This is on page 56, uh, where Chester has finally concluded, okay, yes, this rabbit is a vampire. I have to tell the family. But how can I tell the family I'm a cat? Just then, the door swung open. I could not believe my eyes. There was Chester, with Mr. Monroe's towel draped across his back and tied under his neck, like a cape. That was strange enough, but the expression on his face was enough to send chills down my spine. His eyes were wide and staring. The corners of his mouth were pulled back in an evil grimace. His teeth were bared and gleaming in the morning light. He cackled menacingly and threw his head back as if he were laughing at all of us. I thought he'd completely lost his mind. There's my towel. What's the matter, Chester? Were you cold? Mr. Monroe bent down to take the towel from Chester. Before he could lay his hands on it, Chester flipped over on his back, closed his eyes, and folded his paws over his chest. It was a hideous sight. He opened his eyes wide, with paws outstretched. He slowly lifted his head, eyes glazed and vacant. Soon the upper half of his body followed, all in one smooth flow, until he was in sitting position. Hey, Dad, did you leave your brandy glass out last night? Chester's acting a little weird. Well, son, the cats are funny creatures. <laughs> hey, Dad, is the cat drunk? Uh-huh. I glanced at Chester. He wasn't laughing. Psst, Chester, what are you up to? I'm a vampire, you don't. Can't you tell? I'm trying to warn them. <laughs> well, it's not working. You better think of something else. Chester frowned, deep in thought. 
So you see, Toby, Mr. Monroe was explaining, all cats are indi as individual as all people. Maybe he just wants to get our attention. Isn't that right, kitty cat? Ordinarily, Chester would have left the room upon being called kitty cat, but he was lost in thought. Come on, Chester, give me back my towel. Mr. Monroe moved towards Chester. Chester's eyes lit up. He looked at me and smiled. I sensed I was not going to like what he had in mind. I was toying with the notion of slinking under the table when Chester fixed Pause. me with his... Prediction. Yes. This cat is about to launch himself at this man's face. Continue. Uh, close. Chester fixed me with his eyes. How deep they were, like black pools. I felt myself floating, lost in them. My will no longer my own. I felt an inexplicable urge to murmur, Yes, master, when he walked slowly, steadily towards me. As he drew nearer, I found myself unable to move. He stopped before me, never taking his gaze from me, and lunged. Youch! Mom, Chester built hit, bit Harold on the neck. Oh, that wasn't a real bite, was it, Chester? That was just a love bite. Isn't that cute? Um, so yeah, <laughs> the cat's efforts were in complete vain. Cat ends up getting put into a sweater. Oh, no! I just cannot understand what Chester needs. Dog is mad at Chester. Actually, Chester gets kicked outside for the night for that. Oh, no! And after that, ends up on his best behavior while still sneaking into the kitchen at night to guard the fridge with garlic and sealing the bunny's food so it never eats. Oh. And that's how we get the bunny close to starved, the dramatic confrontation in a salad bowl, where the dog drops the rabbit in the salad bowl, <laughs> and then we go to Levette and everything is solved. And the last thing, you mentioned cat psychology. Um, this was probably my favorite line in the book. Now, about Chester, I said that everything was back to normal, almost. Naturally, Chester is the almost. He's been seeing his psychiatrist, Dr. Verkt Katz, twice a week for some time now. He takes his therapy very seriously. The other morning, I was trying to get a little sleep when Chester came over and nudged me in the ribs. Harold, you realize that we've never really communicated? I mean, like, really communicated. <laughs> I opened one eye cautiously. I'm sorry, is this marriage counseling? And in order to communicate, Harold, you have to be in touch with yourself. Are, are you in touch with yourself, Harold? Can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I know who I am. I'm in touch with the meanest that is me. I can reach out to the eunice that is you. I closed my eye. I'm used to it by now. He talks like that all the time. He no longer reads Edgar Allan Poe at night. And he once he concluded that he had been right about Vanicula, there was no more talk about vampires. The mark of the vampire sits, its usefulness obsolete, on the shelf. Right now, he's reading Finding Yourself by Screaming a Lot. And the other night, when I heard the most awful noise coming from the basement, I didn't even bat an eyelid. I knew it was just Chester finding himself, as he calls it. That, that was my favorite line from this book right at the end. <laughs> finding yourself by screaming a lot. After all these real books that have been referenced through. Oh, that was a good punchline. <laughs> Beautiful. So yeah, uh, that's the moral of Baniculus, that you can find yourself by screaming a lot. Your rabbit might be weird, but you can just feed it vegetable juice and it's fine. Um, and... Upper middle class families in the 70s just had different problems than we do now. Well, it sure doesn't suck. <laughs> Alright, I think that's everything I have to say about Benicula. I think we touched on all of the themes. Like, obviously a theme of this book is, you know, accepting people who are different than you. And also there's, like, very much like a sibling rivalry between Chester and Benicula. You can make the connection of, like, oh yeah, this is a story that if it was about humans would be about, you know, a, a middle sibling 
being displaced by a new baby and being mad about that. You know, that's a classic <laughs> mm-hmm. story that so many kids' books and kids' shows tell. For good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. This is a book definitely written for kids who like reading. There's a lot in With there to say... With all the literary say, references. Hey, you're, you're the, the eight-year-old here who's reading Treasure Island and whose dad is an English professor and whose mom reads a lot, whose whole family is into reading. See, they're just like you. Eight-year-olds reading Treasure Island doesn't really happen anymore. Uh-huh. But also, like, this is a kid... Hard. Yeah, like, the kid says, like, yeah, I have to look up some of the hard words. But also, like, this is a family where that's a thing that you do, you know? Yeah. Let's see. So, yeah. My takeaways here... Uh, a do- book narrated by a dog is always going to appeal-, appeal to my own inner eight-year-old. Um, Chester is a pretty good character as far as children's book characters go. As far as, like, writing a paranoid cat. Like, yeah, it's a trope, but it's... Good one. It also sounds like he was the most fleshed out character. Yeah, definitely. Like, Harold is a little bit too. Harold doesn't really have an arc. Like, Harold knows what he's doing from the start. He, doesn't he have can't to figure have an arc. Out. He's the narrator. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Chester's the only character with an arc. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like, like the few bits that I read from this book, there are some silly bits that do hit for me. My cons would be that nothing happens. I know that's a children's book. Like, my main con of this book is I'm an adult. You already know how to do sequencing. You don't have uh-huh. to learn that. And yeah. the other big con of this book is no, dogs can't have chocolate cupcakes. They're, <laughs> you can share your peanut butter sandwiches with them. You can share your cheese crackers with them. Don't share your chocolate cupcakes with them, no matter how much they love them. How did this child get a chocolate cupcake into his room? Um, he smuggles lots of snacks into his room. I mean, I definitely did the same thing, but a whole chocolate chocolate cupcake is impressive. I think they're talking about, like, ho-hos, probably. That's still impressive. Uh-huh. I managed, like, I think this Hershey's kid is staying kisses. up after his parents go to bed on Friday night, and then sneaks down to the kitchen. And I'm sure it's the parents know, you know. The scariest thing of all. Secret snacks. Secret snacks. And staying up too late reading. Uh, you have anything you want to add here, hon? It's a nice CJ? break from talking about, you know, like, owl war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't hit the war until book five or six of Vanicula. I'm joking. Maybe I'll have to pull out Coraline next year and do the <laughs> rat song for you. Uh, actually, I think that we, or at least you, should do an unnatural selection on that. So maybe, like, next October. That could be you fun. And me, Or even just you, because I feel like you're the person who has the more expertise there. Comparing the book to the movie. Yeah, that's my takeaway from today was, oh my glocks, it is so nice to not do the research and the prep and the the reading and the writing and the notes and the planning and the plotting. I just get to sit here and have you talk mm-hmm. at me. Now, usually I come with at least one segment prepped to, you know, try, try to contribute to the podcast. I didn't. Oh, I was gonna, I was hoping you had some sort of vampire segment for me. Do you want to learn about vampires? Because we will be here all night. Um... You have three minutes to say everything you want to say about vampires. Okay, so Southeast Asia. (laughs) Southeast Asia has some amazing vampire lore, and it's probably where most of the, like, vampires is sexy, vampires is alluring, vampires is, like, preying on women. That's probably where most of that came from. Um, Whereas most of the, um, like, you know... Okay, okay, so there's the Countess of Hungary, right? Like, in, in the kingdom of Hungary back in the day, there was a Countess, the real Countess, probably a serious So probably where that myth came from, along with Vlad the Impaler. Um, okay, so we have this kind of... What, what's interesting about the vampire is there's a myth, 
everywhere about blood drinkers. And in different places, like I said, South Asia, they prey on different people. South Asia, they mainly prey on women, um, and they are huge on pregnancy, which is horrifying. Uh, but I guess there are enough animals that do drink blood, you know, mosquitoes, and like, there are enough that is like a thing that would see happen in nature. Like, well, I don't want that to happen to me. Well, there are diseases too that are um, uh, like associated with vampirism. None of them are quite right. Rabies, uh, rabies is one of them. There's also starts with a P. It's like I've never been able to pronounce it. Um, anemia is also associated with members of the which is also why it's so associated with women. Uh, it's because of the anemia. Um, and also, 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 also,